If you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, we'll begin, um, you know, we're going to finish our thoughts on verses 2 through 4, but we are going to um, read 1 through 4. And then I'm also going to do a a, a brief review of uh, Revelation as we get to this chapter. And at least if I'm hearing everybody correctly, the reviews uh, are helpful in terms of getting the big picture. And uh, so we want to always have that big picture before us as we're reading particular passages within the letter. And by the way, thank you for your, as I said last week, I appreciate your appreciation. And so thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your prayers. All right. uh, Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of God. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him? Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we read this letter that was written 2,000 years ago by the Apostle John, that we would recognize what was taking place then, and that you would give us, Father, the wisdom to recognize when those similar things are at our own doorstep. And help us, Father, to have the conviction to behave and respond faithfully to the things, Father, that you've called us to be and do and think. I do pray, Father, that all of us would walk out of this room this morning, a bit wiser, a bit more confident in your grace and your power and the preservation of your church. So we do pray, Father, that you would help us to grasp these things, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with all of the uh, sensationalism surrounding end times during the last 50 or so years, really maybe further than that, 70 years or so. I mean, you go into a Christian bookstore and uh, you might, I I remember going into a Christian bookstore and asking for a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the manager of the bookstore, who was probably about my age, and at the time I was like in my 50s, had never heard of it. But there were shelves and shelves and shelves dedicated to the end of the world. All the books about the end of the world. It's such a sensational thing. All the books, all the movies. And because of that, I am finding it difficult to persuade people that the revelation is not at least primarily about the end of the world. It certainly includes that, especially chapters 20, 21, and 22. But John is not writing to these seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century that they may muse upon what might happen thousands of years in the future. There is very much a direct application that the people who are receiving this letter are to have 
to the things John is writing to them. And we, by extension, learn from what they are going through and the counsel that they have been given. But in light of all this sensationalism, I feel that we have burgeoned kind of a a two-prong response to the Revelation. I heard it when I first said, I'm going to preach through the Revelation. I, I hear it to some extent even now, not so much from people in our own church, but just in general. You've got these two prongs. One prong is almost mad obsession with end times. As if every single global or not so global trend is about the end of the world. Especially if it's in the Middle East. It's in the end of the world. I, I am not convinced that there is some type of madness attached to the obsession people have with end times. I think, I think there's a disorder attached to it. When you think about it, almost every cult that comes up has a focus upon the end of the world. And it's not a joke. I mean, people make it a joke that, that you know, at the bottom of big buildings, you have these placards with these guys who are kind of crazy. The end is near. There's something, there's something that appeals to us in a very irrational way about the end of the world. And so you've got that. You've got this kind of like, it, our whole church is about the end of the world. And I remember being so, you know, brokenhearted. There was a, a buddy of mine who I'd invited to church over and over and over, and he never came. And to this day, he still hasn't come to our church. But he did finally go to a church, and that church was a church that all they did was talk about the end of the world. And I'm like, He's like, hey, I went to church. And I'm like, where'd you go? And he told me about the church, and I knew the church was always about the end of the world. And he goes, I was just really curious to see how it's all going to unfold in the end. I'm like, you can see where I'm like, why don't you hear about the blood of Christ, not some obsession about, you know, thermonuclear warheads, you know, that are, I don't know if you're aware of this, but, you know, Either the warheads are about to go off, or they're about to expire. And if they're about to expire, it's the quiet before the storm. But if they're going to go off, it's the storm. They basically accommodate whatever the position happens to be. It's like a virus. It just keeps changing to whatever. So we have this, this mad obsession with the end of the world. Now, the other, the other prong that I hear more you know, closely, is exhausted indifference, right? First of all, the more popular system of eschatology that we hear today is so amazingly complicated, right? You've got, you know, you've got a pre-tri- you know, pre-tribulation rapture, then you have a seven-year tribulation. Of course, there's a mid-trib potential rapture or a post-trib rapture followed by a millennium, and in that millennium, certain things. And you're just going, I don't get it. I don't get what's going on. So you have this kind of exhaustion about trying to follow it. What I've also found is, once you kind of figure it out, it was so hard to figure it out, you don't want to ever let it go. I figured it out. And I'm like, but it's still not really working. And so many predictions over the last 50 years, you know, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988, so many predictions that have not been fulfilled, have people kind of going, look at, I'm over it. 
I don't really want to hear about the end of the world. You know, it's just, uh, you know, I'm jaded about it. So, but I'm going to argue, and what I'm trying to argue is that Revelation isn't primarily about the end of the world. I, I hope it's becoming somewhat clear to you what the Revelation is actually about. Because I think the Revelation is highly significant for every generation of the church, especially those finding themselves amid a hostile culture seeking to supplant the triune God with a massive, antagonistic, and beastly government posing as the answer to our problems. See, that's what was going on there. That's what they were dealing with. We're the answer to your problems. You just have to burn a little incense to us. We'll make sure you're taken care of. I remember reading a book years ago. You know, it was a book about homeschooling, but I like the name. The name of the book was Government Nannies. It's this idea that, you know, we're, hey, we're here and we'll be your nanny. We'll take care of you. Friends, it wasn't the first century, but it was in the 20th century that children's toys and doorways of nurseries and orphanages and schools had the stamped slogan, quote, thank you, Comrade Stalin, for my joyous childhood. That's the 20th century. And, and the system of economics that drove that is still in existence today. The system of economics, the system of government that stamped that on the children's toys is still dominating China. It's making, you know, a, a comeback in Russia. I mean, this has not gone away. And it's making inroads into the thinking of our psyche within our culture that we're here and the government will take care of us. We're naive to think that this does not continue. Revelation was written to strengthen and to embolden those who felt the weight of this. You feel the weight of your culture just going, look at you need to bow the knee to me. And that period of history, which transitioned from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, was a turbulent, tempestuous period in history. It wasn't going to peacefully go from B.C. to A.D. The sway of the evil one dominated. We read that prior to Christ, the whole world lay under the sway of the wicked one. And Christ, when he came, and he went to the cross, and he rose again, dealt a blow to wickedness. And it was a wickedness that was not going to go down easy. So we have a, a highly dark and turbulent period in human history where the, the enemy of our souls is going to seek to win the church. And the church is being written a letter to say, don't follow the darkness of the age that is going to try to sway you from continuing in the faith. And with that as a backdrop, John is given a vision which he shares with the church. It's a vision in chapter 1 of the glorified Christ. And I like to say, you know, of all the 
beasts and monsters that we see in the Revelation. There's only one vision that caused John to fall as dead. And that was the vision of the glorified Christ. We we must embark upon this life with that in our hearts and in our minds. That we, that we, we fear man so little because we fear God so much. If we don't fear God, we most assuredly will, will fear man. If we don't want to please God, we most assuredly will seek to please man. And what John is doing is he's setting before the church the glorified Christ. And I don't doubt that as they were going through the revelation, they would just keep going back to chapter 1. And we must ever go back to chapter 1. And then in chapters 2 and 3, which is Roman numeral 2 in Revelation's own outline that we see in chapter 1, verse 19, the things that are, the things that happen, and the things that will take place after this, our Lord becomes very specific in terms of those heresies and the immorality weaving their way into the church. You have seven letters to seven churches going, you've got some problems here. And you need to persevere in the faith. You need to either repent or you need to get rid of this person who is taking your church down a path that it should not go down. So we have in those seven letters to seven churches the repeated theme of you need to overcome. You need to persevere. I know, it's gonna, I know it's hot, and it's going to get hotter, but you need to not acquiesce to the world by which you're surrounded. You know what's interesting, I think, if you read the Revelation the way I think it's supposed to be read, how it's not its own kind of category in terms of like, you know, you've got 65 books in the Bible, then you've got this other book that's entirely different. I think what you find is, if you read the Revelation the way it's meant to be read, that it's very consistent with the other 65 books. For example, this idea of the church becoming corrupt, which was happening in those seven letters to those seven churches, Jude, who was very likely the brother of Jesus, addressing people who were creeping into the church to lead it down a bad direction, wrote this in Jude verse 3, Beloved, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And that's a a theme in Revelation. You need to contend earnestly for the faith. You need to overcome. You need to persevere. You need to recognize you're in a fight. I mean, I have coached my son's volleyball team, you know, and sometimes we do well and sometimes we don't, you know, and I'll call a timeout and I'll, I'll go, you guys, we can't coast. We can't coast. Because you know, you know what you're, you're doing when you're coasting, right? You're going downhill. You can only coast downhill. You got to pedal. It's a fight. And we need to recognize we're in the fight. Then in chapter 4, we're, given, we're really given a heaven's eye view of the actions of the glorified Christ that we saw in chapter 1. You see, from an earthly point of view, Rome and Jerusalem 
had their thumbs upon a struggling and wavering church. I mean, if you and I walked, we were, if we were walking through, you know, first century Jerusalem, first century Asia Minor, first century Rome, we would view the church as something that was all but defeated, all but snuffed out, because we're looking at it through earthly eyes. But in chapter 4, John is invited to go, okay, let's take a look at what's really going on, the metaphysical, spiritual reality of your condition. And we get into this throne talk. Who is really on the throne? You see, from a heavenly point of view, Christ is very much on the throne, governing all things. On behalf of who? On behalf of His bride. Again, this is not something new. This is not something introduced for the first time in the Revelation. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. This is very much kind of a, a, a summary of what we're seeing in the Revelation. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. You see, Paul is saying Christ is on the throne. He has been given all rule and power and authority and dominion. And he's governing all things on behalf of his bride. His bride will survive. They will, they will be preserved. And that is what we see through the revelation. Now this governing and this preservation of his church is shown, and maybe this is why it gets complicated. It's shown via this scroll, right, that's opened with seals. And that scroll is revealing the judgment which will soon fall upon the detractors of all that is good and right and true. And we are told that these detractors, these, these persecutors, where in, you know, in chapters 4 through 11 it's, it's Jerusalem, in chapters 13 through 18 I'm going to argue it's primarily Rome, they are pawns of Satan, I know it's kind of dramatic to think of things that way, but that's the way the Scriptures put it. I mean, if you start comparing things, and I don't have time to get into it now, but if you, you know, when Paul said, uh, you know, I wanted to visit you, but Satan stopped me, and then you look at actually the event that took place that caused Paul not to be able to make it, you'll find that it was actually one of the civil magistrates who stopped him. But Paul's like going, yeah, for a minute... From an outward observable way, it was, I was stopped by the authorities. But in a spiritual way, it was Satan. And we don't like to think that way because it seems too dramatic. And I know that people view the idea of Satan as antiquated and uh, naive and what have you. But it's, you know, as it's been said many times by many people, that's his best kept secret. But they, we are told in the Revelation, will fail. They will have their three and a half years. They'll have their short period of time of success. But their kingdoms will come to an end. It is the kingdom of God that will prevail. At his ascension, just so you understand what happened, Jesus was born of a virgin. He led a, a sinless life. He actually physically, literally died and then came back to life and then ascended to the right hand of the Father where He currently reigns. 
at his ascension, we read, both in the Old Testament and in the New, I'll quote the Old Testament here, Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. I just uh, had a meeting with a young licentiate, you know, he's going to be a pastor. But he's been taught at his seminary that we should not view the Christian faith as being all that influential in terms of changing the culture. And he's like, well, Pastor Paul, do you know any verses that tell us that the world should really become a better place as a result of the gospel? Well, how about this one? That all peoples, nations, languages should do what? Serve him. I don't know. That sounds pretty profound to me. Sounds pretty impactful to me. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Recognizing this is Daniel 7, so there's all these kingdoms they're talking about, powerful kingdoms, Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and he's saying, but there's one kingdom, his kingdom, and that kingdom will not pass away. They're going to come. They're going to go. God raises up kings and kingdoms. Then he deposes them. But there's one kingdom that will endure forever. And it began at the ascension of Christ, that messianic new covenant kingdom of which we are a part. Central, central, and let us not forget this, central to the message of this victory, without which there would be no victory, is Christ himself. Let us not read the Revelation and somehow leave Christ on the sideline as some mere spectator. The only one who is worthy to open the scroll of judgment is Christ. I mean, I guess you could, if you want to write a book on the Revelation, you could entitle it, The One Who Is Worthy. Right? Remember John is crying, he's like, who's worthy to open the scroll? Who can do this? It is Christ and Christ alone who is worthy to open the scroll. Why? Again, This is nothing new to the Revelation. We should read the Revelation with the other 65 books in mind. We don't just kind of go, this is an entirely different book, unrelated. There's a worship song going on in heaven. It's a new song in light of what we're talking about in terms of why it is Christ and Christ alone who is worthy to open the scroll. We see it in Revelation 5.9 and they sang a new song. We're talking about the heavenly host here. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Friends, the ransoming blood of Christ is central to Revelation. Without that, there is Revelation is just a a book written to dead people about the fact that they're going to remain dead and all of history is just moving in the direction of death The judgment of those seeking to destroy Christ's church, the preservation of his bride prevails in chapters 6 through 11. That's where we see the seals and the trumpets of judgment being blown. Now, I said the main foe in these chapters is Jerusalem. And we have to recognize this, and I, I, I labored it in one sermon that Jerusalem at the time became entirely governed by darkness. I think we underestimate how evil they were. I mean, Jesus is not unclear 
when he's saying to the religious leaders in Matthew 23, if you want to read an indictment, that's where Jesus, and he's talking to people who have my job, right? He's talking to the clergy. And he says, you guys are whitewashed sepulchers of dead men's bones. You know, you, you, you make one proselyte and you turn them into twice as much a son of hell as yourself. I mean, he goes on and on. And then he finally goes, you guys are so bad that all of the blood from Abel to Zechariah is going to fall upon you. This is it. You guys have reached like the zenith of evil or the nadir of darkness, however you want to put it. They were ripe for judgment. He's like going, look at it. If Sodom and Gomorrah saw what you guys saw, they would have repented. You're worse than them. That's how evil the religion had gotten during the time of Christ. In chapter 12, we see almost parenthetically, and it kind of is parenthetical, I guess, you might go, well, wait a minute, how in the world can all this be achieved? And in that chapter, we see you know, how the dragon wants to kill baby Jesus and fails. We see, very, it's summed up in that chapter, we see the birth of Christ going right to the ascension of Christ. We see in that chapter the, the casting down of Satan, the casting him from heaven. And then in chapter 13, we're introduced It's like the battle's not over. We're introduced now to another foe. And I would argue that this foe is Rome. Now, in the passage we just read, we talked about the beast rising out of the sea, that if you were in Asia Minor and you were looking out at the sea, you'd be looking toward Rome. So, you know, imagine the ships coming up, right? Because they're going to, you know, this idea of a siege is coming. Seven heads indicating generational resilience, this idea that you know, one dies, the next one takes its place, another one dies, the next one takes its place. Ten horns, symbolic of great power. Ten crowns on those horns, signifying, number one, that you're talking about somebody in a position of legitimate authority. Remember I said, and we're going to have to get into this, and you know, how Revelation 13 doesn't contradict Romans 13. Romans 13 talks about being deferential to legitimate authority figures, but there is a limit. And we, got, we learn those limits in Revelation 13. You've got these crowns indicating a legitimate authority figure, but the crowns are on the horns indicating that they're not going to be ruled by love or wisdom or goodness or grace. It is a might-makes-right method of government, which is very true of what they were dealing with. And seeking, I think, to instill a sense of confidence in the hearts of his readers that they may know that God, and by the way, if you have the notes, there's a huge typo here, or it's not really a typo, I guess it's just a word I left out, that makes the sentence mean just the opposite. Right? So you've got to correct that. That God had not lost control of history, or that the fiery trial which they were about to endure wasn't random. Remember, Peter says, don't think that this fiery trial that you're about to endure is if what's going on. John references a prophecy about what they were currently going through, made by Daniel five or six hundred years earlier. So it's all, I mean... Think about that. You know, you think about this idea. I don't know what your best or worst day of your life ever was. But, you know, 
If God decided it would be appropriate, he could have written a prophecy about it. He could have said, on this day, on this year, that's going to happen to you. And I don't know about you, but such a knowledge, if it's in fact my Father in heaven giving me that information, is something that I would find imminently consolatory. I'd be very comforted by the fact that God's going, look at, I have a day that you're going to be born, I have a day you're going to die. You're going to enjoy one more than the other. But it's my day that I'm giving both of those. And every day in between I've ordained. The idea that we are very much in his hands. He's not kind of going, I hope it works out for you. He's a God who is in control of the minutiae. And so they needed to hear, I think, in order for them to have the confidence to endure this fiery trial, that this is something Daniel had written of hundreds of years before. This beast that Daniel talked about with the leopard and the bear and the lion. These are all taken from those nations in Daniel, these great terrible, powerful nations that would all precede the coming of Christ. They would precede the stone made without hands who would come to the earth and destroy all of those worldly, ungodly nations and become a mountain and cover the whole earth, which I would argue is still happening to this day. And that fourth beast in Daniel, the worst of all of the beasts, is Rome. And what what John is doing here is he's making all of those four beasts one aggregate beast. That is what they're dealing with. These horrible nations, they were given power and throne and authority by the devil, it says. It's Satan's effort to keep what he had accomplished through the fall. He had accomplished through the fall that sin would dominate the world. And now Christ comes and he's like going, no, not on my watch. I'm not going to allow this great commission to succeed. I want my great insurrection to continue throughout the course of history. And in Revelation, we're learning that is not going to happen. You're done. I mean, you, you, I mean, I know that you still exist, but you are a defeated enemy. And your ability to deceive the nations has come to an end. And my gospel will go forth. And it may take a while, but it will succeed. That brings us up to date here. Verses 3 and 4. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast, so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with him? Well, let me just tell you, you know, sometimes I'll restudy parts of Revelation, and I'll go, I think I have a pretty good idea what this is, and I, but I'm looking, you know, and there's a lot of speculation about this mortal wound, and some people would argue that, and, and they've got some historical data to indicate that one of the Caesars got wounded, and then they thought he was going to die, and he came back to life. Other people kind of would argue that this is kind of like a, a mock resurrection, you know, where they're trying to be like the Christ-like figure who died and came back to life. I don't know. I, I don't buy any of those things. I think more likely it is the fact that we talked about the seven heads. 
that one Caesar dies and another one takes his place. You're, you're kind of going, this administration is coming to an end, and all of a sudden you realize you lost the election again. Of course, in those days, there weren't elections, right? But this idea that you're thinking, wow, Caligula's gone, who's next? And go, wow, he's worse than the last guy, and so forth. You've got this idea that this is going to just continue generationally, at least for a while. I'll just tell you it's not entirely clear what that mortal wound was. But I'll tell you what is clear. Everybody was quite impressed. That's what's really clear in the passage. The, the beast's ability to continue, people marveled at. He, he appears unbeatable, right? With the words, who is able to make war with him? I mean, that, that's a rhetorical question, right? But the assumed answer to the rhetorical question is nobody. We can't beat that guy. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like, wow, there's a direction, there's a tide that is moving us in a direction, and I just don't think we can win. I think this war is over. And I've heard it once, I've heard it a dozen times. It's like, oh, we've lost that battle. That's a defeatist attitude, and I don't think we should have it. Sometimes you just got to dig your heels in and fight. But it goes beyond this idea of an unbeatable foe. The subjects become enthusiastic advocates, right? They, they're not just going, wow, who can beat him? They, what do they do? They begin to worship him. They worship the devil. They worship the beast. They're like, I'm on board. I just want us to stop here. And I, I guess if I'm to impart, I don't know, I got to be careful here because, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. And there was like, we were a rebellious you know, I, always, I used to like it, to call it like a, a defiant nobility, but it was rebellion. But I still think we need to have a little bit of that in us. Because if we don't understand who our true master is, then we're going to be deferential to the wrong people. And... You need, to, you need to understand, I, I have to say, you know, I, I watched, I, just yesterday I watched this, you know, um, this guy was doing kind of an expose on false teachers in America. And, you know, the false teachers in America, they, they own their own jets. I mean, they, they don't have, you know, I like our facility here, but they have stadiums. We have a pretty decent budget in our, in our church, but they take more in in one Sunday than we take in all year. And I, I watch them, and I'm listening to them, and I'm going, and I look out at the congregation, you know, and they, they're, everybody's well-dressed, and they have Bibles, and I'm like, what madness is taking place here? Can they not hear that this person is speaking out of both sides of their mouth? Can't they hear it? They're... I would want all of us, myself included, to not be overly swayed by what I would call a mob mentality. Okay, I have to be honest with you. I don't entirely understand a mob mentality. I mean, I get it. It's not like I don't understand it intellectually. But I just can't see myself, and I hope I couldn't see any of you on a street where for some reason you all think it's a good idea for eight or ten of you to start beating up one person. And kicking them. 
like this, or somehow that setting things on fire and breaking windows is a good idea. Let's do this. It's a good thing for us to do. Where it, it, people get swept up in it. And it, it doesn't even have to be a matter of some social justice. It would be, hey, we want a championship. We want a championship. Let's light some cars on fire. Yeah, you know, I, I hope that none of you are that way. I hope every one of you would be like, sorry, not going to happen. At the risk of sounding, you know, self-ingratiating. I learned that lesson a long time ago when I was in fourth grade in Hermosa Beach at South School. And I was in Mrs. Kepke's room. And there was a little quiz, and I gave my answer to the quiz, and uh, all of a sudden it dawned on me I was the only person who gave that answer. Everybody else gave a different answer. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to change my answer because everybody else had the other answer. It must be right. I changed my answer. It turned out we were all wrong, and my original answer was right. It was fourth grade. I don't know what the question was. I'm sure it wasn't that difficult. But at that point, I realized, you know what? I could be the only right person in the room. Now, I'm not saying that to, you know, float my own boat. What I'm saying, I'm saying that to you and the fact that you might be surrounded by a bunch of people who are going, no, we need to head west. And you're like going, I'm not going to go west. South would probably be the better direction. (laughs) These passages in chapter 13, I think, will show us how a culture is won over. We're going to see things, you know, and again, I'm not, i got to be careful how long I go in this, but this idea of these swelling words, you know, this idea that there's a, there's a dialogue going, there is rhetoric going on that's winning the culture. I don't know about you, I mean, I'm, like a lot of people, I'm fascinated with World War II, and I'm fascinated with what happened in Germany in the 30s. I've read a number of books on it, because they just can't figure out how that happened in a lot of ways, how you got ordinary people to do such horrible things. But you've all seen those speeches that Hitler gives, right? You know, he's yelling, and everybody's like enthralled, and, and it, you're, you're like going, wow, what's he saying? And then I, I, I mean, people are dialed in, and then all of a sudden I started seeing the translations, and I'm like, he's really not saying anything all that significant. It's not like he's saying something all profound, and yet he was surrounded by like a frenzied crowd of people who eventually were willing to do horrible things. Now, you might think to yourself, I would never do that. That, You know, that's your first mistake, to think I would never do that. your, your, Your attitude should be, I am capable of doing that, but by the grace of God, I'm not. This idea that I'm above that is not the way that our hearts are captured by the culture. Perhaps you've all seen this old photo wafting through the internet of a man standing in the midst of a bunch of people offering a very enthusiastic sig heil. And for legitimate and heartbreaking reasons, he stands there with his arms crossed. I don't know if you guys have seen this picture. He was making a statement. Everybody's doing the sigil. And the statement was made for legitimate reasons, if you've read the story, and the statement would soon cost him his life. He wasn't going to live long past making a statement in that culture. 
but he simply wasn't going to join the crowd. And let me tell you something. I've lived long enough to see that it's not too difficult to get people who lack a true substantial foundation for their convictions to eventually sig heil. I mean, I, I, I used to write, routinely write a, um, an op-ed piece for a local paper about cultural issues. And, you know, I stopped doing that where they weren't interested after, you know, they got a new editor who was kind of not as in, open to Christian stuff. And, you know, but in these articles, I would kind of, I would say something like, you know, this is going to affect our children. This is going to affect our children. And then people would write me, and they would assail me, like, oh, you're always using children as a prop for your positions, blah, blah, blah. Well, here we are. Here we are, and people are unabashedly involving children in such confusing issues that I wonder what's going to happen in 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years with the fact that we've utterly confused our children, engaging in things where they don't know if they're a boy or a girl. They have no, no idea what's going on. And it's not as if it's subtle anymore. My point here is, 20 years ago, people were like, that will never happen. You're making stuff up. You're using children just to kind of to make your point. Well, it's happened. And we need to be wise unto that. And if you don't have a foundation that is ultimate and immutable and unchangeable and tethered to that which is absolute, you will eventually fall into that trap yourself. Sometimes, friends, and I'm not encouraging unnecessary rebellion, but sometimes you simply need to cross your arms. You've got to just kind of go, not me. I'm just not going to do it. It could be in terms of the way you're thinking, or it could be in terms of your behavior. Everybody's, everybody's taking a hit. Everybody. Come on, man. You've got to not do it. You've got to just go, that. Nah, and I'll tell you something else. I'll tell you something else about that room where you're going, I know you're all going to do this. I'm not going to do it. And they're like, hey, you know, and they, whatever they're going to call you, somewhere deep in the hearts of the people in that room, they're going to be looking at you going, that's the one person I actually, if the chips are down, I want to call. You, you, have, you will have set yourself aside as a person of substance. If you're willing to go, I don't care what you guys are all doing. I'm not going to do it. I don't care what you're saying about your mom and dad. I like my mom and dad kids have <laughs> the guts because deep down inside they're going to be like yeah I like my mom and dad too or I wish I did or I know it's the right thing and, and you're, now you're a person who's saying the right thing and when they need somebody to talk to who's saying the right thing guess whose phone's going to be ringing just two weeks ago I was preaching at the rescue mission and I, at the mission I, I similar to here I do a question and answer time afterward, and there was a gentleman who asked a very penetrating question. He said, you know, Pastor Paul, he goes, how do you know if it's God or the devil? I mean, the answer seems obvious, but I realize, you know what, it's not that obvious at all, because you know what the devil poses as? An angel of light, right? We always think of the devil, you know, with a red jumpsuit on, right, and a triton and some ridiculous tail, you know, he's twiddling his mustache. But he poses as an angel of light. 
And he was like, how do I know if it's God or the devil? How do I know if it's good or if it's evil? You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. Cultures, trends, personality figures, dynamic influencers, they come and go. But if you don't know the immutable words of Christ contained in Scripture, you won't be able to distinguish God from the devil or good from evil. Now, we're going to finish here, and I'm going to continue um, next time. Uh, you know, regarding this beast of the sea, and then we have the beast of the land coming up. But I, I do want to finish with this because we're not, we're not getting to verse 10, and I talked a little bit about it last time. We have to recognize kind of where John is going with this. Like, why is he sharing all of this? This is not just for like our, you know, intellectual curiosity or again for us to muse. Verse 10, before he gets to the beast of the land, He'll talk about people who are maintaining their faith. And he'll say, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Those who are not going to allow themselves to be swayed by the zeitgeist, you know, the, the, the wind of culture, here are the people who will, who will in fact persevere. Because let me ask you this question. You know, when I was in high school, it was the Jesus movement. How many of you ever heard of the Jesus movement? Right? It was like the stepbrother to the hippie movement. And, you know, everybody's kind of, and we all had long hair and plaid flannel shirts and big giant crosses around our necks and big dog-eared Bibles and what have you. But it was very in vogue in those days to be a Jesus freak, you know. It was kind of culture, it was like the cultural norm. But how do you know that your faith in Christ is not, as I said earlier, just part of the mob mentality? How do you know that you're just not doing it because everybody else is doing it? I mean, that's the atheist argument. The atheist argument is you're only doing it because you were born in a culture that does it. We use terms like once saved, always saved, or eternal security to indicate that a true believer will never lose their salvation, and I think that is accurate. But the biblical term, and I think that's we, we should use biblical terms whenever we can, is the perseverance of the saints. It's, so you're not, I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I think there's nothing wrong with looking back on a religious experience, that's fine. But I'm not so interested, to be honest with you, on what religious experience you had as much as what is your religious experience right now. Do you believe? Will you walk faithfully? Will you persevere in the faith? You see, a true believer is not somebody who never has failure. A true believer is not somebody who, you know, keeps the foot on the pedal and just moves from coast to coast without any checkered problems, you know. The true believer is the one who perseveres in the faith. 
you know, and I mentioned this, and I'll finish with this last time. The Apostle Paul had a lot of self-deprecating comments that he made. And he, he was not full of himself. He, he never said, you know, I've reached the true victorious Christian life or something like that. If anything, when, you were taught, when he would write, it would be like, Paul, you've got to have a better self-image. Because he, he's always like, oh, and I, I constantly do that which I do not want to do. I'm constantly failing. But that all led to some place, right? Praise God for the blood of Christ. Oh, wretched man that I am. I don't think that is spiritually unhealthy for us to acknowledge our own wretchedness as people who decided to rewrite Amazing Grace from having who saved a wretch like me to who saved a soul like me. Because the word wretch is just too negative. Yet it's in the Bible. So again, maybe that's a good word to use. But in all of the self-deprecating rhetoric that the Apostle Paul used to describe himself, there was one thing he said about himself that at first glance might seem as if he was proud in a very negative way, but I don't think he was. I think he was acknowledging the preserving power of Christ in his life. And that were, the, and that were these words right here. Those were these words right here. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I pray that's true of all of us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray. Father, we pray that we would be aware of the enemy, of the darkness, of those who would seek to win our souls when we are confronted with them. And we do pray, Father, that you would give us boldness of heart, that we might recognize that we are very much in a battle. And it is a battle, Father, that in eternity past, you determined we would go through. So help us to be faithful in it. Help us to be warriors. And we do pray that in all of this, that the kingdom of God would ever grow. And Father, we thank you that you've allowed us to be part of this magnificent redemption that you are bringing to pass throughout the course of history. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.